Ladies and gentlemen, a very, very warm welcome to this event in the LSE European Institute's Perspectives on Europe public lecture series. We, are, we were delighted when Pierre Calois Padouin accepted our invitation. We were delighted for, for a number of reasons. Uh, first, because the LSE attaches great importance to its links with Italy, both at the level of students, at the faculty level, and something tells me that in the coming months and years those ties are only set to strengthen, in fact. The second reason for our pleasure is, of course, that Minister Padoan's topic is nothing if not ambitious uh, and tackles the issue of the moment full on, namely the future of the EU economy. Now, an authoritative Italian statement on this rather pressing question is welcome, not only because of Italy's uh, weight and role uh, in the EU, obviously, but because the fate of the Eurozone is also intimately tied to Italy's own economic health. And there's there's obviously no way of disentangling the two. Uh, Neither one nor the other can be considered in isolation. Well, there's an original observation for you. But, of course, there is a whole host of challenges confronting uh, the EU's economy. And we look forward very much to what Minister Padawan has to say about these. Anything he says about Italy uh, will be an added bonus. And, I suggest, will be of more than passing interest to this audience and to the much wider audience here in the UK, in the City of London, and across the EU. Uh, The third uh, reason for the timeliness of of the Minister's talk this evening uh, is, of course, something which I'm sure will not have passed unnoticed in this room, namely the imminence of Italy's presidency of the European Union beginning on the 1st of July. Now, Pier Carlo, Carlo Padoan brings a wealth of expert credentials to his topic this evening. Apart from being Economy and Finance Minister of Italy since February this year, he's been Professor of Economics at La Sapienza. He uh, has been Deputy Secretary General and also Chief Economist of the OECD. He's been Italy's Executive Director of the IMF and Director, amongst other things, of the Fondazione Italiani Europei Think Tank. You name it. So as you can see, and as I hope you noticed a long time ago, those of you who are regulars here, we at LSE like to aim pretty high when we extend our invitations. <laughs> now, we will, of course, as per usual, leave a decent amount of time after Minister Padoan's presentation for questions. We look forward to his remarks very much, uh, and it only remains for me to invite you, Minister, uh, now to come to the lectern to share your thoughts and your analysis with us. So, ladies and gentlemen, please a warm welcome for Pier Carlo Padoan. Thanks very much, Professor Fraser. Good evening to all of you. Uh, when I was a young uh, graduate student in economics, thinking about what should I do next, I would consider going to some distinguished uh, school of economics outside my country, and I said, of course it would be great to go to the LSE, but they will never take me. Uh, and they didn't take me, not because... <laughs> Well, one reason is that because I did not apply eventually. (laughs) But certainly, it's a great pleasure to be back here. I've been visiting LSE in in a number of of occasions for different reasons, but every time has been exciting, and this time is particularly exciting. So uh, I will uh, um, share with you my personal views about uh, the EU economy after the Great Recession and implicitly uh, my personal view about what Europe should do uh, in the coming months and years, since, of course, we are approaching a very delicate transition period with a new European Parliament being put in place in a month's time or so, and a new Commission being put in place possibly at the end of this year. In the meantime, since Professor Fraser was kind enough to mention the EU presidency by the Italian government starting July 1st, 
by uh, uh, an historical accident, this will happen in a period which can be technically defined as power vacuum period. So it will be uh, double important to, uh, for Italy to continue providing resilience and, and possibly, hopefully, some leadership and guidance in the European agenda, which is very demanding. So let me start uh, walking to a few slides, and uh, I which I do with great pleasure, because uh, I have been most of my professional life a professor in Italian and foreign universities, and like they say, once a professor, always a professor. And I uh, think that speaking to an audience like this is one of the most challenging uh, jobs I've ever done, and I continue to think it is one of the most challenging ones. I hope I can manage to walk through this. Uh, yes, I do. Great. So, uh, first of all, something about the title. The EU economy, well, it's, it speaks for itself. After the Great Recession, I hesitated a little bit to put this title in my presentation because uh, in my previous life as Chief Economist of the ICD, I, I stated publicly more than once that the Great Recession was over, and uh, I was wrong. Um, so I hope this time I get it right for the good of, uh, of Europe even more than the good of myself and my reputation. But I think that we're exiting the Great Recession. The problem is that it's not clear where we're going. Uh, and my, my main idea is that uh, what is a major risk to Europe now is complacency. To think that because the cycle is turning finally positive in, in Europe and in the euro area, uh, we have done all that needs to be done. Uh, I would not agree with that. Europe has done a lot, but still needs a lot that needs to be done, especially by putting a priority at the center of the policy and political debate, which is growth and jobs. Uh, in a nutshell, this slide summarizes my point which I'll try to develop uh, as quickly as I can. Uh, if you ask yourself, what has Europe done since the Great Recession exploded, the Great Financial Crisis exploded, it has produced uh, tremendous efforts in at least three areas. One is fiscal consolidation, and this has been a very important, painful, and precious process, which has generated a now much more stable fiscal and debt position throughout most of the European countries. And this is being achieved, as I said, with great pain. It must be preserved. It is a fundamental condition for the future to be sustainable. The second uh, big element of adjustment is what I would uh, call internal devaluation in the periphery. Um, we are looking at periphery countries in the euro area doing today frankly, much better than I believe to be the case six months ago. Uh, Ireland is out uh, of the program. Portugal is about to exit the program. Spain has completed the special banking program, which is related to the banking sector problems. Of course, Greece is not out yet, but it's moving in the right direction. This is not to say that the adjustment is completed. By far, it is not. But this has been a major effort. It's been very painful. It has a big price. It has paid a big price in terms of output losses and employment losses. Third adjustment, banking sector repair. And here, of course, the agenda is very rich, and it's still in the making. Uh, of course, banking unions made a lot of progress. More needs to be done. The... Uh, third pillar of a banking union, which is deposit insurance, is still not on the agenda. Uh, uh, Europe has almost completed the two pillars, the supervisory pillar and the uh, crisis resolution pillar. And of course, we are now just beginning to see the overall assessment of the banking uh, sector in Europe, which will uh, test whether or not the financial crisis has, has, has been completed, has been dealt with. Uh, what is not on the agenda is a growth strategy. A lot of lip service has been paid to, to the issue of growth and jobs in Europe throughout the crisis years. Uh, 
and much discussion has been put on the table. But frankly speaking, it has not been priority number one in the policy agenda by policymakers. Not so much in, in the policy debate, including the academic debate, but in the policy agenda. Um, and this is one strong point that uh, Italy wants to make uh, when it takes up the EU presidency. So most of my talk will be to share with you elements which provide some substance to my point, which I just summarized, and try to think together what it means to have a credible, realistic, and effective growth and employment agenda in Europe. Well, first of all, these are slides most of you are probably familiar with. But this slide just reminds us that there has been a big dip at the beginning of the crisis, uh, which has been very severe in almost all <coughs> advanced economies areas. And after that, there was a belief that the, the crisis was over. There was a big dip in 2009, then a big recovery in 2010. And many views at that time in both uh, the policy uh, circles and the, and the analysis circle was, okay, this has been a big dip, but we're out of the dip. Why am I mentioning this? Not because this is a sign of the mistakes we as economists made, and certainly I take fully my responsibility uh, about forecasting mistakes, but because this led to a mistake about the policy response. If the crisis was over, it was, it was said, then we need to put the policy uh, stance back to a pre-crisis mode, meaning let's turn fiscal policy back to a consolidation path rather than an expansionary path, and let's adapt monetary policy to a more normal situation. What at that time, meaning in 2010, was not considered that this is and has been a deep financial crisis. And therefore, if you have a financial crisis which generates a drop in demand like this one, you cannot say that you're out of the crisis until you complete financial sector repair. And in my view, one of the mistakes in Europe has been to postpone financial sector repair to today. This was not the case in the U.S., where financial sector repair was the initial and most important priority that the government dealt with. Uh, moving uh, further down the line, the fiscal sector repair. Uh, but today, we are slowly getting out of there after a double dip, and after, in Europe and in the U.S., finally dealing with the financial sector problems. Uh, which have been at the root of the crisis. One sign of that is in a diagram, uh, which, uh, which, which again is very familiar to all of you, the, the spread diagram. Uh, actually, I had intended to put on the slide the same diagram covering a longer period, but I can tell you the story if you, if you bear with me. If Probably uh, all of you are familiar with the fact that if you expand backward this diagram and you go to, say, 2000, what you will see is a very fast and deep spread convergence in Europe, meaning that when the euro was announced and introduced, markets suddenly believed that this was a game changer. So all countries' members of the euro have the same risk assessment, so spreads tend to go to zero and you would see the flat line uh, including all uh, euro area members uh, from 2000 so so forth until the breakout of the crisis which in europe uh, means of course the breakout of the greek crisis so when the crisis broke out spreads began to uh, diverge dramatically and for some time they kept on diverging we are now, again, in a descending mode. What does this graph tells me? That there is a big problem about how markets uh, form their expectations. They tend to make mistakes on both sides. They tend to be over-optimistic when they say, with the euro, risk goes to zero. And they tend to be over-pessimistic when they say, oh, the euro will not survive, and so spreads uh, um, signaling risks premia diverge. 
So there, uh, there is a problem of generating an institutional architecture which, which provides confidence in the institutional setting. And this is uh, where Europe, almost on the verge of collapse, um, eventually responded uh, in a number of ways, but basically sending the signal that Europe was willing to do, as you know, whatever it takes to, to save the, uh, the, the euro area construction. So, Europe reacts to the crisis, but again, my point is, it has to do its homework until the end. And doing the homework uh, is difficult, because one of the consequences of the crisis, again, this is well known to you, is that we, find, we suddenly found ourselves uh, sharing in the euro area a common currency, but understanding that the currency issued, uh, the currency circulating in Italy as the same name as the currency circulating in Germany, but we're talking about two different currencies. Uh, because the uh, domestic or sovereign risk in Italy is such that uh, activity in one country which is perceived to be weak and unstable is very different from uh, what is the perception, say, in Germany. Why has this been important? Because this generates a contradiction between having a single monetary policy and having a different differentiated transmission mechanism. Why am I saying this? Because until the uh, financial sector is fully repaired, this fragmentation cannot be said to be fully uh, dealt with. So again, this is one additional piece of evidence that says Financial sector repair is essential because this is a financial crisis. In the case of the euro, financial sector repair is essential because this is uh, a necessary condition for monetary union to survive. So in the case of the euro, of euro area, the response to the financial crisis has an additional dimension, which is fighting fragmentation. Uh, this is more of the same as seen from a different perspective. I will not spend much time, but let me come to the adjustment. Uh, again, uh, as I said, the first response in Europe was let's deal with public finances first. And a major effort was obtained in bringing now what be, uh, is increasingly seen as a more and more unstable uh, public finance situation in a number of countries. This has required a significant amount of fiscal tightening, which of course, by definition, uh, subtracts to demand space. There's no doubt about that. So uh, this has, of course, made the exit from the recession more difficult and longer. But uh, again, this is not to say that the finance, public finance stabilization is not relevant. It is essential. And exactly because many countries have achieved it, it is extremely important to keep it there, not to lose all the efforts and pain and adjustment that has carried through that. But let me uh, go to the growth story a bit more. Well, first of all, the growth story in Europe is not a story which begins, the, the weak growth story in Europe, it's not a story which begins with the crisis. It predates that, and there are many ways to which you can describe it. One way is to say uh, growth potential has been declining, and you can say it in a different language. Productivity growth has been insufficient, unsatisfactory, or if you want to put it in a uh, different, again, different context, competitiveness has been declining and weakening. So Europe has a problem which predates the recession, and therefore, the policy response must address both old problems and new problems as generated by the recession. And uh, you can measure that in a number of ways. This is just to <coughs> capture your attention. One way of measuring that is to ask how is Europe uh, faring with respect to other major areas. Uh, in the meantime, and this is the next step, Adjustment has been going on within the euro area. And adjustment has been painful, but as I just said, successful in the periphery. What is the problem with that? Well, one problem is that the adjustment has been concentrated in one part of the euro area. And 
This is a point I've made many times, and I repeat it now. It would have been useful if the adjustment had been more symmetric. By symmetric, I mean uh, more adjustment in surplus countries, Germany, but not only Germany. This is now widely recognized. In the current uh, EU procedure for macroeconomic imbalance surveillance, an imbalance can also arise if a country runs a persistent and, and sizable current account surplus. Of course, we all know from history that pressure for adjustment is much stronger on deficit countries than it is on surplus countries for obvious reasons. But this is just to say that if the adjustment story is part of the growth story, then the policy implication is that there is a task for all countries involved, and the adjustment should be more evenly distributed, so that the overall result is more beneficial. And in the case of surplus countries, there are measures which would benefit uh, surplus countries in the first place by boosting their growth, while at the same time contributing to the internal economy adjustment. And here, where, and here is, let me get more into the growth story. Where does growth come from? We are talking about medium to long-term growth. We are talking about potential growth. So clearly, the structural dimension, the structural agenda is key in boosting growth. And here, the story is not new. It's actually boring. It's something we know. Uh, it is about structural policies. What is new is that now we have to recognize that there are two dimensions which can reinforce each other. One is the European dimension, which has an old name. Remember the single market? Uh, I was a young man when that was launched. I think that there's still a lot of potential in the single market. Now it has a different name. Uh, it covers a broad set of areas. But still there is a lot of potential which can be exploited through, for instance, service liberalization. And then there is a national dimension. Here I have a bullet point referring to my country, and you will forgive me for that. Uh, but Italy is a very clear example of a country where growth has been going down much before the crisis. Potential growth is now probably below 1%, and this is simply not enough for a big or medium-sized country which has a huge debt. And there, there is a reform agenda which needs to be implemented and possibly supported and boosted by the European agenda. So one element of a growth agenda is to be more specific and decisive in passing reforms and implementing reforms, meaning not only nice laws, simple laws, but strong implementation. Otherwise, the law is totally useless. It doesn't generate any result. And reforms have been carried out. This is one synthetic indicator that says that in the euro area, both in the core and the periphery, product market reforms, which are key, by the way, to generating growth and jobs, together with labor market reforms, have been carried out significantly. And if this is the case, then some growth is inbuilt in the Europe baseline. And therefore, this has to be strengthened and more needs to be done in that agenda. Of course, uh, if you want to make it simple, the supply side is improving, the demand side could do better. Why is that important? Well, certainly we need demand to translate potential output into a, a effective output. But there is another reason, which is it's deeper and more subtle in a way. There is increasing evidence that says that a given reform of the supply side, be it product or labor market, has a different impact in terms of, say, employment and growth, according to the intensity of the cycle. So if the cycle is strong or is getting stronger, then a given reform will have a more effective and visible impact in a shorter time. In other words, you need a favorable macroeconomic environment to get the most out of structural reforms. Or, again, you need a growth strategy which looks at both sides of, of, of the coin. If we don't get that right, 
then we are uh, stuck in one problem which comes up very often in, when you look at macroeconomic descriptions of the euro economy, of the euro area economy, of the European economy, but also other economies. Investment has been declining over time. And uh, if you don't have investment, you don't have uh, growth, and if you don't have investment, you cannot translate innovative ideas into new technologies and productivity, and if that is the case, productivity lags behind, and TFP, total factor productivity, lags behind. So in a nutshell, uh, the growth agenda in Europe means trying to bring together supply-side measures, innovation measures, and an appropriate uh, demand environment, plus the addition of what I would call um, uh, framework conditions for reforms to be implemented. One example, again taken from my country. Uh, if you have a, an inefficient judiciary system, then litigations about break, or contra breaking contracts will be extremely long, and therefore financing activities that imply uh, frequent lit litigations will be more costly. It, if they will be more costly, there will be less investment and therefore less growth because the judges are too slow. That's blunt, but uh, just to raise the point. Or if there is corruption in one country, you know that there is a great reform that Parliament has passed, but it will not implement it at the local level because corruption will simply stop it. Or if public administration is not efficient, very honest public service servants will take a long time to translate into implementation directives a law. All kinds of things like that make reforms much less effective. So you need a good environment, you need good laws, and you need a favorable macroeconomic framework. These three conditions are essential for a new growth strategy. If you don't do that, we will be facing for a long time with a huge unemployment rate, which is of course concentrated uh, in, especially in the young courts. And just let me ask you one question. How long do you think an institutional integration project can last if for a long time it will uh, accept and tolerate huge numbers, millions of unemployed? That is a political question, it's not an economic question. But I think this is the question that policymakers in Europe have to face today. Uh, also because uh, employment, in spite of the recovery, does not seem to be uh, coming up. And this tells me that, number one, recovery is still too weak. Number two, maybe the way labor markets react to growth uh, in terms of more jobs can be improved. So we need to rethink in a number of ways the way labor and product markets interact. Finally, uh, it's not just about growth and jobs. It's about the fact that low growth and resource misallocation in terms of uh, mismatches in the job market, for instance, generate inequality, and inequality feeds back on consumption growth. So this is my final slide. And the agenda for growth and jobs in Europe requires, let me summarize, policies that look at the macroeconomic environment with stability, which means fiscal consolidation to be achieved and maintained, structural policies both at the national and the European level, framework conditions, and of course, not just GDP and jobs, but indicators of quality of life and uh, social fairness. These are the ingredients. Let's see if we can mix them together in the right way. Thank you very much. Well, Minister Padawan, what a clear and, and thorough and wide-ranging presentation you've give us, given us. Lots for us to get our teeth into. Um, you made a strong case for, a, I guess, one, one could uh, define as a holistic approach, uh, macroeconomic, microeconomic, national, EU level, and then uh, institutional level within Italy. Um, talked about the judiciary, corruption, 
quality of public administration and so on. It's an ambitious agenda. If I, just ex- if I may just, without abusing my uh, chair, chairperson role at least uh, too much, um, what sense do you get in, I mean, I realize these are very early days in this, in this new government, but that these issues are being tackled interdepartmentally, holistically, um, rather than, I mean, of course, attention overwhelmingly is on uh, in the European media, in the, before the court of public opinion, is on fiscal consolidation and structural supply-side reform. But there's more to it than that, as you suggested. I just wonder, in terms of how, what is your early sense with the early days of this administration, of the extent to which all these are, issues are seen as being of a piece and inter- interrelated, <laughs> and on their own, none of these particular strategies can yield much. Is there any sense of joined-up government, is what I'm, what, 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 I'm, what I'm saying? There's a sense that they all need to be tackled, and is your sense that this can be, is being done institutionally in a way which looks promising? Uh, okay. It's on already. Well, thanks very much. The, the um, first thing I'd like to say about this is... Uh, this is very much in the mind of a very energetic young boss I have, uh, uh, which uh, is much younger than I am, but I can tell you he can, he can send very strong messages, very, very positive messages. Um, the two aspects here. One is, yes, as you just mentioned, uh, if your problems are deep-rooted in past obstacles that have accumulated over time, and these are compounded by a very long recession period, then there is no shortcut to the way you deal with those problems. You need a comprehensive strategy. And the uh, view of the government is that you have to include as far as, as much as possible the elements of my mix in, into, the, in, into the measures. And the measures that so far have been uh, introduced by the government are structural measures, labor market reform, institutional reform, which has a, a huge impact on the way economic decisions are made because they will introduce political certainty and confidence about the fact that one government will stay there for the time needed to get those reforms through. Other reforms about the tax system, so a reform agenda which is very rich, number one. Number two, uh, strong effort in terms of implementation, including implementing the judiciary reform, which was passed by the previous government, and the public administration reform, also introduced by the previous government, which needs to be implemented. And a uh, tax relief operation which benefits both households, especially low-income ones, Mm. uh, and companies, so that the tax wedge is at least marginally reduced, adding to competitiveness. No single measure alone, as you said, will do the trick. But all of them should at least achieve the target or kick-starting a new growth phase also by injecting confidence. Why am I mentioning confidence? Because confidence is turning out, including in a bit more sophisticated uh, analytical econometric studies, a key ingredient in determining whether or not you want to make a long-term decision, be it uh, investment decision or acquisition of durable goods or you name it. If we have to move from a short-term emergency reaction to the crisis to a long-term building attitude, you need to have confidence about the medium to long term. So the idea is that this basket of measures, including, let me repeat, the institutional reform agenda, will increase confidence in the medium to long term and therefore boost confidence and uh, generate responses with additional resources. All of this is done while the European an Italian self-imposed fiscal discipline is respected and maintained. So you, can, can we square the circle? Well, we're trying to do that. We'll see whether, uh, to what extent we are right or wrong. But this is the idea. Thank you very much. Um, 
Right, we have time for questions. If you'd like to indicate your keenness to put a question, um, I will do the usual boring chairperson's uh, thing of asking you, please keep it short and sweet. Uh, one question, no speeches. Uh, if you could say who you are, what your affiliation is, um, and wait for the roving microphone to be brought to you. Um, I suggest we take questions one by one, or do you want to cluster them? Whatever. Yes. It depends on we'll many take, of them. We'll start. So if let, if well, there's too many, clustering is a way of yes. squeezing. Uh, well, I think we'll start one by one. It's often a better way of giving a proper, a good answer to us. Um, right, okay. Yes, the lady at the front had her hand up almost straight away. I'm Georgia Maffini, Oxford University Center for Business Taxation. So my uh, so uh, question would be on taxes. So the, US, uh, the UK has recently become the most competitive um, uh, jurisdiction in the G20 with regards to business taxation. And this has attracted a lot of companies from other European countries. So my question, and this means losing probably jobs and growth from other European countries, is the UK an example for the Italian government in terms of cutting uh, both welfare expenses and taxes? Or is it a problem? And if it is a problem, will this be a problem raised in Europe as well? Thank you. Uh, I didn't get your point right. Are you saying that the UK is a problem for Europe? So, the UK is becoming very aggressive in terms of tax competitiveness. Okay. So I know that countries like Germany are really worried about this. I wonder what's the Italian... What they uh, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, I have a different perception. I was yesterday in a meeting in Paris uh, where uh, I met four finance ministers, colleagues of mine, including George Osborne, and including the Spanish minister, the French minister, and the German minister. And we got together because we proudly launched an initiative which now... Uh, involves now 44 jurisdictions and will involve many more about a common taxation policy, in particular about the automatic exchange of information to fight uh, tax evasion. So this is just one example to say to your implicit question that you can do tax policies in a cooperative fashion. It's not necessarily about tax competition. This is one point. The other point is that, and this is my view, uh, you can have a lot of tax competition provided that it is done on a common ground. So there is some work that needs to be agreed upon in de defining, for instance, a common tax base for corporate, and then letting all the players decide which tax rate they want to apply. So I find this is totally legitimate and actually beneficial. What is not acceptable is unfair competition and a lack of transparency. And this is the other side of the coin. Some of you may be familiar with the BEPS G20 OECD slash OECD initiative, which is just beginning to be implemented, which aims exactly at tackling uh, the issue of avoiding no-no taxation uh, regimes that some companies enjoy because of lack of transparency, lack of a level playing field. Having said that, let me tell you that in my new job, I would love to lower taxes as much as I could. I would really love to do that. But... <laughs> I'd expect you rather more applause than that. Um, but uh, I'm just um, interesting. Yes. Um, good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, good. Um, more questions. I'm sure move upstairs now. Somebody had... had, had yes. Um, the lady... Lots of early hands in, the, in the front row, the yes, the lady there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Minister Padua. Uh, my name is Sana Musharraf, and I come from Pakistan, which is a developing country. Having had some exposure to uh, public finances and how things work, there was always a question of what needs to be done. Similarly, in your presentation, you very uh, beautifully summarized what should be done. However, my question is, how and what, uh, or who? Uh, and if the answer is political leadership, will that political leadership come from within your own country or from the EU in the case of the EU? Or exactly how will you carry out the transformation and reforms as you have <coughs> presented to us? Thank you. Um, 
Shall I take that? Yeah. Happy to. Political leadership is, of course, always an essential component of any policy, policy choice, but it is particularly relevant now uh, to me. If uh, I can convince you that the story is the following, Europe is now you know, on a weak growth path. It can continue to do that, muddling through for several years and not really getting out of the slump and not really generating new jobs. Or it can jump on a different growth path by injecting quickly and credibly structural reforms both at the national level for, to me, all countries involved and also the European level. The difference between those two alternative paths at the bifurcation point is exactly the amount of political leadership. If there is enough political leadership, then you can jump on the good path. If there is not enough, then you just uh, muddle through for some time and you don't really address the problems. So political leadership is an essential element in determining how you, uh, what, what you do when you come to the bifurcation point. So where will it come from? That was the question. Sorry? Where will it come from? Uh, well, I can tell you, I know a boss of mine that has a lot of political leadership. Where it comes from, I still have to ask him. I have to be, uh, you know, more intimate with him. Uh... Jolly good. Thank you. Right, a lot of people uh, want, to, want to put questions. Um, we'll try and we're making good speed. We've got plenty of time. Um, yes, John Palmer and Ian Begg. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senor Paduan, for the clarity uh, with which you've uh, outlined the challenges facing your country and the rest of the European Union, the Euro area. Given the kind of reforms that you're seeking, uh, I wonder whether, with the Italian presidency coming up, you've reflected on to what extent the Union collectively, the Euro area perhaps more specifically, could uh, facilitate the context of those reforms by acknowledging the need for some kind of debt partial or otherwise debt cancellation, because there is still an enormous debt overhang uh, which uh, may militate against the success of the reforms that you seek in, in, the, in the longer run. And just a sentence question to add to that. Um, I hear quite a lot of discussion about the potential for a much, much bigger role for the European Investment Bank than has ever been conceived before. Do you recognize that possibility? Well, you have two questions. One is uh, broad-ranging about debt. How do you deal with that? Uh, I would uh, recast your point in a different uh, context. Uh, what I would be happy to see is not so much debt cancellation, but rather a positive debt dynamics, meaning that I see debt going down. And uh, if it goes down, uh, it means that you're in the right path. Uh, of course, one could argue in order to have debt to go down, you first need to cancel some of that. Uh, this is a very delicate and controversial issue. Uh, my answer to that point would be what you really need to bring that down is more growth, real and nominal. I'd like to see much, some bit, a little bit more of inflation, maybe. That wouldn't be bad. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when inflation was really bad, bad, bad. Now maybe inflation is not, not so bad after all, if we had a little bit more. Uh, on the EIB, yes, my answer is yes. I think that's a very important uh, instrument. Maybe we can use it more, quote-unquote, don't quote me, quote-unquote, aggressively, meaning that you can involve e, uh, the EIB uh, in, in more SME financing with uh, more risk guarantees coming from other sources as well. We can rethink the way we use the huge amount of resources available, both public and private, for financing for growth. And this, by the way, will be one of the other chapters of, that we intend to put on the table when we are EU president. Thank you very much. Ian Begg. Just at the front here. Thanks. I won't ask you the question you're expecting. The <laughs> uh, first question is how your accurate description of insufficient 
demand can be dealt with. Now, there are, there are two main possibilities. One is to induce the countries with latitude to, to increase demand to do so. Essentially, it means getting the Germans, the Swedes and the Dutch, all these countries with surpluses, to spend more. And yet they don't want to. So how do you reconcile that in political terms? And this is in the absence of much room for manoeuvre in monetary policy. The second source of demand is corporate. You, you highlighted the low investment. And in particular, and this comes out from something I'm doing in research in Italy recently, investment in skills is deficient across Europe, very strongly so in Italy. Is enough attention being, being put on how to get an increase in investment as a means of stimulating demand alongside whatever the public sector can do? Thanks, Ian. Uh, I was expecting something of the kind. We, we know each other for, yes. so know each other for a long time. Uh, uh, demand support coming from policy. Um, I think monetary policy can do a lot, maybe more. Uh, fiscal policy support to demand uh, uh, while maintaining fiscal consolidation implies that while the direction of fiscal policy uh, needs to be kept, maybe the speed and profile of fiscal policy can be uh, adjusted. Or to put it differently, I think that there is now agreement that some years back in some countries at some, some stage, the pace of fiscal consolidation was, could have been slower. Let me put it this way. So this is where I see public support. But I see most of the demand gap to be filled by private sector demand, and notably investment. Um, and investment, private sector investment, would do a lot in helping uh, the rebalancing story. I mentioned that in passing in my presentation. Germany, as low investment, and the, surplus, the current account surplus is largely reflecting the excess savings over investment, which to me does not mean that savings should be reduced, but investment should be raised. And so the next question would be, how do you raise investment? Well, in the case of Germany, one thing that the OECD has been, sorry if I mentioned the OECD, but uh, has been repeating to Germany over and over is that through, say, service sector liberalization in Germany, you would definitely boost investment. Germany is a great manufacturing sector. It has, does not have a great service sector. So if you boost investment by liberalizing, you boost the growth rate in, in Germany, and you help demand in the euro area. And you do that on a, a permanent basis. So this is how I would see it. Uh, there is some fiscal space. We can use better the fiscal space. There is significant monetary space which can be enhanced. And there is a lot of, of, of demand that can, be, can come from the private sector, especially in terms of investment. So that would be my, my approach to that. Skills? Well, investment in a broad sense, so in, investment in skills. Uh, of course, that in the first place implies investment in education, which has a quantitative component but then a qualitative component as well. Investment in education, we know from evidence, is the most effective investment in terms of long-term growth. The problem with investment in education, as far as I know, is that to, to generate results takes a long time, really a long time. You first have to invest in the education system, then you have to produce skills, and those skills have to be incorporated into human capital, and then human capital has to be applied to your uh, production activities. So, you have to accumulate a number of cycles. But at the end of the day, if you measure what you get, it's the best investment you can get, is investment in education and skills. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go upstairs now. Uh, yes, the gentleman, yeah, in the, in the white shirt, just exactly, yeah. Hello, uh, Eric also from AKO Capital. Uh, <clears throat> clearly, the political leadership is there to uh, boost growth and induce uh, structural reform in Italy. But what would you say is the biggest risk for the, this not happening? So I was sitting here in three years and Italy hasn't really started growing. Thanks. Apologies. I was trying to identify you. And while I'm trying to look at you, I was not listening to you. Uh, I'll try and ask it. Apologies uh, for that. Then. But can no, you please quickly repeat no the question? No worries. Um, so, so clearly the political uh, leadership is now there in Italy and the willingness for reform. 
But what do you think is the biggest risk that this doesn't happen so that we sit here in three years and Italy hasn't really boosted growth and hasn't really implemented all of these things? Uh, The greatest risk is that there is not enough time for the reform process to bear fruits, so to make them credible. And time can be cut short for a number of reasons, both domestic and international. I'll let you think about those. They're quite obvious, I guess. Good. Thank you. Um, The gentleman in the front row in the pale jacket. Yeah. The problem is that more answers I give, more questions I, I, I see that. Yeah. yeah, sure. Bernard Casey from the University of Warwick, London School of Economics. And once upon a time, I used to work briefly for you when you were in Delsa at the OECD. It was a long time ago. I don't remember you, you might not remember me. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you about Casa di Integrazione and Toto Nomine, but I actually decided I'm not going to ask you about that. Um, So I won't ask about Italy. I'm going to ask about investment. And I'm going to follow up your previous question about investment in education being highly important, which I might or might not agree with. The problem is that according to the way in which we manage our public accounts and our European accounts... Investment in education is not investment, nor is investment in health. And I can think of a number of things which might actually be conducive to achieving what we are seeking to achieve. But, in fact, uh, the system of national accounts and European accounts actually penalises such activities. Do you think there is a scope for redefining um, European accounts and redefining um, the meaning of investment thereby... And if you are, where are the limits of investment? Since I've also heard, and I remember when I was even at the OECD, people talking from France, I think, at the time, about how defence expenditure was investment in security. Um, So could you comment on that instead? But you might have a word about the Casa de Integrazione, the Jobs Act, and also you might mention the Toto Nomine when we're talking about structural reform of administration. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I fully agree that uh, identifying investment from from an accurate accounting point of view is extremely difficult and of course what at least we should settle for is to have a common view what generates investment this is I think it's only a part of your question I think what you have in mind tell me if I'm wrong is so once we agree on what is investment how do we treat it from the point of view of Fiscal targets. I guess that was the point, right? Uh, Well, my view is that it matters what makes up the different components of a public sector budget. Uh, You can achieve the same amount of quantitative fiscal consolidation in many different ways according to the composition of spending and the composition of taxation. This is an old traditional OECD topic which you're probably familiar with. And therefore, if we accept that quality also matters, we can uh, achieve fiscal consolidation with very different impacts on growth and inequality and other targets. So I would argue strongly in favor of a much more qualitative approach to uh, budget accounting and the policy implications of how you treat the budget items once you agree on what you're measuring. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes. Sorry, gentleman in the blue shirt. Just there. Hi, my name is uh, Federico Santi. I'm here on behalf of Eurasia Group, which is a political risk advisory firm. Uh, you mentioned persisting financial segmentation in the EU. Um, could you be a little more specific on your assessment of the agreement that was reached on banking union recently, more specifically with regards to the single resolution mechanism, and do you think there are any risks involved in the um, ongoing review of banks on the part of the ECB, um, given that the framework that was agreed will not be in place by the time the results of this uh, exercise will be released later this year? Thank you. Uh, you can 
My view on banking union at the stage it is is that it's a, it's a good compromise. It's a half full glass. Uh, maybe uh, a few months ago I would have said, no, I want more. But uh, at the end of the day, it is a good compromise for two reasons. One is because itself it establishes uh, almost completely the, the pillar about crisis resolution in addition to the single supervisory mechanism. Some th- Something else needs to be added, some technical details, but most importantly, the common fiscal backstop needs to be put in place. Having said that, I think I always remind myself that if you compare Europe today with Europe 2010, the institutional architecture of Europe is hugely changed. No one would have thought, or many or maybe some visionaries would have thought in 2010 uh, with the then existing institutional framework for Europe, which was basically, if not exclusively, a fiscal framework, that you would have a different approach to crisis management by the ECB, ECB on the verge of introducing quantitative easing, and an f- almost full-fledged banking union. This is a tremendous uh, improvement, which, however, let me go back to my uh, remarks, it's not enough. So that tells you a lot about how Europe reacts. Of course, you need a huge crisis to do something, but that's true of many countries, not just Europe. Second point, what do I expect from the comprehensive assessment? I expect to be a transparent and therefore effective uh, operation, even if there might be individual cases of some banks needing to upgrade their and strengthen their capital. Uh, but I think the, uh, the, the measure of success will be the credibility of this exercise. And the way I understand it from outside, I'm not involved, of course, in the exercise, is that this is exactly the way it's been introduced. So I'm confident that the uh, comprehensive assessment will at the end generate a stronger financial sector in Europe and will complete the financial sector repair agenda which I mentioned. Um, That's it. I think we've got time for a couple more questions uh, and then we'll have to call a a halt. Yes, the lady in the green green, um, blouse. Um, Yeah. Uh, I'm Milena Lee, a teacher. Um, I do not see any advantage in joining the ERF, the European Redemption Fund. And Sorry, the could you speak a little bit louder, please, and yes. hold it as close to the microphone as close to your mouth as possible? I do not see any advantage in joining the ERF, the European Redemption Fund, and the TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership. What steps have you taken to ensure that Italian people are fully informed of the consequences of such a move? Which move? The TTP? Yeah, the TTIP and the European Redemption Fund. What measures have we taken to make that public knowledge? Yes, that's right, yes. Um, make sure that people are fully aware of the consequences of such a move, yes. Uh, well, the consequences of the TTP are hardly known because the TTP is not completed yet. So we will discuss the consequences of that once it is in place. My personal view is that TTP would be a powerful driver to more integration of growth, so I would welcome success there. Uh, The European Redemption Fund, uh, I... uh, Tell me, why why should we worry about the... Why is that... Do you see that as a a threat to citizens to have a European Redemption Fund? I'm sorry, I, I I cannot get your point. Uh, I confess I'm not personally doing it, but my point is, what, do, in your view, are the consequences? Why should we worry? I mean, we have to be uh, communicating to the people all the consequences of all, all policy decisions. And my, my point is, why are you concerned especially about the European Redemption Fund? Why should... Okay, I, I get the message, yes. Uh, I want to tell you that issues like that have been 
widely debated in the European Parliament, and the European Parliament uh, uh, also had a, a, a dialogue with the European Council and with European member states on those issues. So that is one way of making the broader public aware of uh, important but still quite technical political decision, policy decisions. But anyways, I take the point. We'll, we'll try to communicate better. It depends how okay. long they are. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. The gentleman there in the dark top has been trying valiantly for... Uh, David Webb. There's a link back to actually the earlier question about uh, European national accounts and the degree that it seems that reform of pension systems are discouraged by the national accounts and the combination of that with fiscal targets. But my question is very much around looking forward, looking at the extra cost coming through from an ageing population, the social costs associated with that, and potentially climate change coming through, are current fiscal targets really uh, sustainable in the long term? That's a very big one. Uh, <laughs> pension systems can be sustainable or not sustainable. It depends on how you design them. That's my obvious, stupid answer to your very important question. Uh, and so I, I, can, I can tell you, but this may be... May, but we are at the end of the, of the evening, so allow me to be a bit patriotic. Uh, I think that the Italian pension system is one of the most sustainable you, you can see around in the developed economies. I know you're surprised by that statement, but uh, I can, we can have a private conversation on that. Uh, climate change, I guess uh, you mean, well, you can t address that point from that different points of view. Climate change is expensive, dealing with climate change. Is that what you have in mind? Therefore, how you, do you, or d should we uh, look at the trade-offs? I'm not clear about what you have in mind by mentioning climate change as, as uh, with respect to, to budget policies implications. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, right. Well, uh, if we have to be serious about climate change, we have to admit that the uh, intensity and amount of trade-offs we have to face, and therefore uh, policy space, are much more complicated if you want to introduce climate change as one element of your, quote-unquote, welfare function. Uh, and uh, in addition to the other t targets. I mentioned inequality. I would add climate change as one additional variable to be targeted by policymaking. And yes, it is expensive, but also I think that there are margins of improvement in terms of efficiency and productivity in dealing with climate change, both in terms of adaptation and mitigation. And maybe this is also a source of innovation, which could eventually even boost growth. So I would tend to take an optimistic medium to long-term approach to that. Okay. Last question. Um, uh, a gentleman, I'm going to move back downstairs. I can't promise you 15 minutes of fame. You've got one minute to put a cracker of a last question to the minister. The gentleman at the back. And we will have to stop it there, I'm afraid. But, uh, um, yes, thank you. John Algar from uh, Euroweek. Um, Minister, you spoke in your opening remarks on the contradiction of the single Eurozone monetary policy, yet fragmentation of credit availability between sovereigns. So I guess the topical question would be, how do you think that observation should influence how the ECB thinks about quantitative easing? I think it does have a huge impact. It's, well, for one thing, it is, would be wrong to think that QE in the Eurozone would be similar to QE in the US, exactly for that reason. Because apart from fragmentation, you do have different financial systems in the different members of the Eurozone. So the way monetary policy, including QE, unconventional, is transmitted to the real economy is also a function of the way the national financial markets operate. Uh, in terms of QE implication, that would, would, for instance, raise the issue of what kind of assets should the central bank acquire to implement QE. And it would be, have to, 
to take on board the national diversities and with all kinds of implications. So I think QE should be and has been included in the toolbox of the central bank, the ECB, but that doesn't make that is not easy to implement and uh, and uh, because of the specificities of the eurozone which is still not fully integrated so i think we need the option of qe to be available it's going to be more difficult than say for the fed to implement good well i think um, i think we, we can all agree that Mr. Padawan has really done us proud uh, this evening, uh, not only by venturing, venturing some daring thoughts on inflation in this context, in this context, but most particularly, I think his talk will be remembered really for the very, very uh, clear and rich and, and full answers you've given to a very wide range of questions. Uh, really, you've given us, we've had a really tremendous, uh, what, um, 75 minutes odd with you now, um, and it's... Uh, Really can't thank you enough. It's been a, a splendid presentation, splendid answers to the many, many questions. We'd love to have you back soon. You will always be very, very welcome here, and I'm sure we'll want to show our appreciation in traditional LSE way.